1972, I was 16, young, my father said, to be traveling with him on his diplomatic missions. He preferred to know that I was sitting attentively in class at the International School of Amsterdam. In those days, his foundation was based in Amsterdam, and it had been my home for so long that I'd nearly forgotten our early life in the United States. Seems peculiar to me now that I should have been so obedient well into my teens, while the rest of my generation was experimenting with drugs and protesting the imperialist war in Vietnam. But I'd been raised in a world so sheltered that it makes my adult life in academia look positively adventurous. To begin with, I was motherless, and the care that my father took of me had been deepened by a double sense of responsibility so that he protected me more completely than he might have otherwise. My mother had died when I was a baby, before my father founded the Center for Peace and Democracy. My father never spoke of her and turned quietly away if I asked questions. I understood very young that this was a topic too painful for him to discuss. Instead, he took excellent care of me himself and provided me with a series of governesses and housekeepers. Money was not an object with him where my upbringing was concerned, although we lived simply enough from day to day. The latest of these housekeepers was Mrs. Clay, who took care of our narrow 17th-century townhouse on the Ramgracht, a canal in the heart of the old city. Mrs. Clay let me in after school every day and was a surrogate parent when my father traveled, which was often. She was English, older than my mother would have been, skilled with a feather duster and clumsy with teenagers. Sometimes, looking at her too compassionate, long-toothed face over the dining table, I felt she must be thinking of my mother, and I hated her for it. When my father was away, the handsome house echoed. No one could help me with my algebra. No one admired my new coat or told me to come here and give him a hug or express shock over how tall I had grown. When my father returned from some name on the European map that hung on the wall in our dining room, he smelled like other times and places, spicy and tired. We took our vacations in Paris or Rome, diligently studying the landmarks my father thought I should see, but I longed for those other places he disappeared to, those strange old places I had never been. While he was gone, I went back and forth to school, dropping my books on the polished hall table with a bang. Neither Mrs. Clay nor my father let me go out in the evenings, except to the occasional carefully approved movie with carefully approved friends, and, to my retrospective astonishment, I never flouted these rules. I preferred solitude anyway. It was the medium in which I had been raised, in which I swam comfortably. I excelled at my studies, but not in my social life. Girls my age terrified me, especially the tough-talking, chain-smoking sophisticates of our diplomatic circle. Around them, I always felt that my dress was too long or too short, or that I should have been wearing something else entirely. Boys mystified me, although I dreamed vaguely of men. In fact, I was happiest alone in my father's library, a large, fine room on the first floor of our house. My father's library had probably once been a sitting room, but he sat down only to read, and he considered a large library more important than a large living room. He had long since given me free run of his collection. During his absences, I spent hours doing my homework at the mahogany desk or browsing the shelves that lined every wall. I understood later that my father had either half forgotten what was on one of the top shelves, or, more likely, assumed I would never be able to reach it. Late one night, I took down not only a translation of the Kama Sutra, but also a much older volume in an envelope of yellowing papers. 
I can't say even now what made me pull them down. But the image I saw at the center of the book, the smell of age that rose from it, and my discovery that the papers were personal letters, all caught my attention forcibly. I knew I shouldn't examine my father's private papers, or anyone's, and I was also afraid that Mrs. Clay might suddenly come in to dust the dustless desk. That must have been what made me look over my shoulder at the door. But I couldn't help reading the first paragraph of the topmost letter, holding it for a couple of minutes as I stood near the shelves. December 12, 1930. Trinity College, Oxford. My dear and unfortunate successor, it is with regret that I imagine you, whoever you are, reading the account I must put down here. The regret is partly for myself, because I will surely be at least in trouble, maybe dead, or perhaps worse if this is in your hands. But my regret is also for you, my yet unknown friend, because only by someone who needs such vile information will this letter someday be read. If you are not my successor in some other sense, you will soon be my heir. And I feel sorrow at bequeathing to another human being my own perhaps unbelievable experience of evil. Why I myself inherited it, I don't know. But I hope to discover that fact eventually. Perhaps in the course of writing to you, or perhaps in the course of further events.